You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is TJ. Oh, hey. Oh, TJ, we are just going to kind of dive right into this because there is a lot of stuff to absorb. But for those who don't know, the day that this episode drops is going to be August the 10th. On August the 9th, it will be the 50th anniversary of the Tate murders. And by principle alone, I'm not actually going to be talking about the murders themselves because there are so many podcasts out there, television specials, YouTube clips, movies that touch on that. And we are a rock and roll podcast. We are about the music, not the murders. So, well, yeah, well, I, I mentioned well, them, but I yeah. don't go into detail <laughs> because every there's a million true crime podcasts that touch on this. And like TJ said... We are a music podcast, so today we are going to talk about Dennis Wilson. So for those who don't know, Dennis Wilson is a member of the Beach Boys, but also, fun fact, Dennis is actually the uncle of Carney and Wendy Wilson, who are two-thirds of Wilson Phillips, just so you get an idea of what that pedigree denotes. Si bueno. But... Dennis Wilson was born Dennis Carl Wilson on December 4th, 1944 in Inglewood, California, which is weird because his brother is also named Carl. What? Yeah. All right. I mean, stranger things have happened. Well, what George Foreman names all of his sons George? And one of his daughters, I think. <laughs> is she George or is she Georgia? Maybe Georgia. Yeah. Fingers crossed for her. <laughs> he was born to... Audrey Neva, and George Gage Wilson, who worked in a machine shop. Dennis was the middle of the three Wilson brothers, which also included Brian, who was born in 1942, and arguably one of the most famous musicians ever, and Carl, who was born in 1946. The house and the quiet residential street no longer exist, and they have been raised in the mid-1980s for the construction of the Century Freeway for those who know the freeways in LA that's actually the 105 freeway and is now California State Historical Landmark number 1041 dedicated in 2005 and that is because the Beach Boys were born there well there you go yep while growing up Dennis was the rebel of the family constantly in trouble with the notoriously harsh father Murray Out of the three Wilson brothers, he was most likely to get beaten by their strong-willed father. His neighborhood nickname wasn't Dennis the Menace for nothing. Ask David Marks. His mother, Audrey, loved him. As for Murray, that was always a recipe for trouble. Two irresistible forces in one house. You begin to understand why Dennis spent so much time at the beach or anywhere that wasn't 3701 West 119th Street in Hawthorne. Audrey was once quoted as saying that the similarities between Dennis and his father were uncanny. Dennis and Murray often butted heads with Dennis being so strong-spirited. Possessed with an abundance of physical energy and a combative nature, Dennis would often refuse to participate in family sing-alongs, and likewise avoided vocalizing on the early recordings that Brian made on a portable tape player. For Wilson, the music was the glue that kept the family together. So starting off, Dennis had like a really... Rocky life with his dad. Yeah. Sounds like it. And it almost sounded like they kind of doted on Brian because he was the good kid and he had a ton of talent. And so Dennis, I do mention it later, Dennis would escape by going to the beach. Well, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of important because the band was called the Beach Boys. Right. He was the only surfer. Oh, he was? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, there I you do, go. I do make note of that later, but like literally the other boys tried it, I think, once and they hated it. And so they would sit on the beach and watch Dennis do his thing. Well, at least they were still at the beach. Yeah. So there's that. They're technically beach boys. Yeah. 
However, Dennis would sing with his brothers late at night in their shared bedroom. A song by Brian later recalls, our special one we'd sing titled, Come Down, Come Down from the Ivory Tower. Brian noted of the late night brotherly three-part harmonies. We developed a little blend which aided us when we started getting into the Beach Boys stuff. In 1959, for his birthday that year, Brian had received a reel-to-reel tape recorder. He learned how to overdub using his vocals and those of Carl's and their mother's. Brian played piano with Carl and David Marks and an 11-year-old neighbor, and they would all play guitars that they had received as Christmas presents. Nice. There are studies out there, and, like, it's rumored. I don't know how true it is and how, like, solid the research is, but that uh, siblings tend to harmonize really well and best together because they're family but yeah. you you would assume that they would have like similar bone structure and similar like facial features that make your voice unique right so they're going to have like really smooth harmonies together because there are similarities he was actually expelled from high school shortly after he turned 16 for getting into a fight with a classmate in the boys bathroom and the cause of the fight was a nickel lollipop that he had stolen seriously you get suspended for fighting over a five cent lollipop? Not suspended, expelled. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, that's even worse. Yeah, it does. It's not better. It's worse. Yeah, no, that's way worse. Like I was saying before, Dennis was the only member of the Beach Boys who actually surfed. After one such session, he raced home to his older brother Brian, by then already obsessed with music, and told him that he should write a song about the surf craze for the band that they were pulling together, the Pendletones. Pendletones? That's a terrible name. What happened to the Pendletones, you might be asking? I was not asking. I was saying, get rid of that freaking name. <laughs> well, I think his name is Joe Sarah Crincio. If I'm butchering that, I apologize. At Candix Records and distributor Rush Reagan actually changed the name of the group to the Beach Boys on the records label without their knowledge thinking that it would help them cash in on that surfer music fad that was happening in the 60s. Well, it most definitely did. Yeah. But that does suck that they did it without their knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it sucks I mean, that it they was didn't for tell the, them. It was much, it was for the better, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. Much, much better. Much better name. But it sucks that they did it without their knowledge. And I love this. Dennis's mother, Audrey, forced Brian to include Dennis in the original lineup of the Beach Boys. Urged- Aww. <laughs> Urged by older cousin Mike Love, Dennis had approached Brian to form a group and compose songs about surfing. The Beach Boys officially formed in August 1961, with Murray taking over as manager, and they were immediately successful. Though the Beach Boys developed their image based on California surfing culture, one that Dennis was extremely familiar with, he played rudimentary rhythm on their first session, 1961's Surfing. And if you hear it, yeah, it's very, very rudimentary. It's a very, it's almost acapella. Oh, okay. An obvious target of female enthusiasm, Dennis was assigned lead vocals for the few early novelty songs, Little Girl, You're My Miss America, Surfer's Rule, and This Car of Mine. And um, I, I was trying to find it written somewhere, but it was explained in a documentary that I watched called The Real Beach Boy. And Dennis would play the drums differently then most people played them. And normally what it is, is you put the hi-hat and the cymbal on your uh, dominant side with the, what's that one? Snare? Tom or snare? I think it's the snare. All right. With the snare on your non-dominant hand. But he played it backwards. So when he would do the hi-hat, it would be very light, but it would have this raging backbeat. So, So that kind of formed this iconic Beach Boy sound with this like driving undertone like you'll hear it anytime you listen to it and I don't touch on this a lot but the fact is that Dennis was humble when it came to drumming and so if they were in the studio he would bow to other people other drummers and he would allow them to play on the album and so he would play live but people tend to think that Dennis Wilson didn't play as much as he did on the albums. And I think I maybe touch on that a little bit, but I kind of just wanted to put that out there. Was 
He did play on some of the albums, but he did not play on a ton of them. By the time the de facto manager of the Beach Boys, Murray, landed them their first paying gig, for which they earned $300 on New Year's Eve at the 1961 Richie Valens Memorial Dance in Long Beach. Aw, nice. I think that is like the fourth time we've mentioned Richie Valens on this podcast. Probably. In their earliest appearances, the band wore these heavy wool jacket-like shirts that a local surfer's favored before they switched their trademark striped shirts and white pants. In early 1962, Morgan requested that some of the members add vocals to the couple of the instrumental tracks that they had recorded with other musicians. This led to the creation of the short-lived Kenny and the Cadets. I know we love... Oh, oh my. <laughs> oh, the 60s. Yeah. And these... And the uh-huh. Bobby Fuller and the Empties. And the Empties. <laughs> Which uh, Brian led under the pseudonym Kenny. The other members were Carl, Jardine, and Wilson's mother, Audrey. In February, Jardine left the Beach Boys to study dentistry and was replaced by David Marks. Murray remembered that long after the surfing group had a difficult time being picked up by another label. So they were on that label, and it was kind of a one-shot deal. So they kind of tried to shop around to other labels. And they were turned down by Dot and Liberty. The Beach Boys signed a seven-year contract with Capitol Records. It was at the urging... That's not too shabby, though. No, it's not. I'd let I'd, I'd be okay if the littler ones didn't want me if Capitol wanted seven years. Yeah. And Capitol does have the best building in Hollywood. It is a great building. It is a really good building. Pretty iconic. It was at the urging of Capitol Records executive and staff producer Nick Vinay, who signed the group, seeing them as teenage gold, the kind that he had been scouting for. On June 4th, 1962, the Beach Boys debuted on Capitol with their second single, Surf and Safari, backed with 409. Those are iconic songs. Yeah. Yeah. The release prompted national coverage in the June 9th issue of Billboard, which praised Love's lead vocals and said the song had potential. Surf and Safari rose to number 14 and found airplay in New York and Phoenix, a surprise for the label. And you have to also remember, like, this kind of music was revolutionary. People had never heard this on the radio. And it would have an influence on a past topic that we did, Bobby Fuller. Even from Texas, he was hearing this music and it was influencing him. So I'm fangirling. I need to stop. In the early years of the Beach Boy, Brian gave Dennis the role of drummer. And Dennis quickly learned the basics of drumming at school lessons. And like the other members, he had he picked up more on the job. And the fact was that um, in the documentary that I saw, The Real Beach Boy, basically, Brian was like, okay, Dennis, you're the drummer now. And that's because Carl was already on bass and, he, and Brian was on piano. So pretty much if... Brian had said, okay, you're on piano now. Dennis would have learned how to play it. So. In early 1963, Dennis teamed with Brian's former collaborator, Gary Usher, a neighbor in Hawthorne who became a prolific creative figure in surf music recordings and later on in folk. As a duo writing, producing, and performing, calling themselves the Four Speeds, again, great name in the 60s. They That's released- much better than whatever the other one was, Pentatones or whatever. Pendletones. Pendletones. Yeah. <laughs> Much and better. And Kenny and the Cadets. Yeah. And so was the, the four, four speeds is way better. Yeah. As the four speeds, they released the single RPM backed with Mr. Stingray. So both car songs. Go in, figure. <laughs> in that year. Get the, it? Four speeds? Car songs? Go figure? Oh, got it. <laughs> in that year, the band gained nationwide prominence. With a string of top 10 singles that reflected a Southern California youth culture of surfing, cars, and romance, later dubbed the California Sound. And that sound was originally identified for harnessing a wide-eyed, sunny, optimistic attribute to the Southern California teenage life in the late 60s. And the genesis of the California Sound is said to be the Beach Boys' debut single, Surfin' in 1961. The University of Southern California history professor Kevin Starr has stated that the band was historically important 
for embodying the era of the silent generation, which he described as unpolitical. By the end of 1963, the Beach Boys had recorded three full LPs, hit the top ten as many times, and toured incessantly. Also, Brian was beginning to grow as a producer, best documented on the third Beach Boy LP, Surfer Girl. Though the surf song still dominated the airways, Catch a Wave, the title track, and especially In My Room, presented a giant leap in songwriting, producing, and group harmony, especially astonishingly considering that the band had been recording for barely two years. I think specifically what this article that I pulled this from is talking about is that if you listen to their progression, even Catch a Wave melodically and the way it was produced is so much more rich than the previous recordings. Right. No, I, I, I I think it's not based on like the vocals or the lyrics. I think it's just talking about straight production. Well, no, I I agree. I'm just saying in my room is a really good song. It is a really good song. When Dennis, well, well, Dennis. That's like my favorite Beach Boy song. (laughs) It's not mine. Really? We will get to mine. For much of Dennis's early life, that vibrant energy bubbled just beneath the surface. He showed flashes of inspiration, but he was never really taken seriously until his pent up creativity would literally burst out of him. That would prove to be really dangerous later on in life. On board a flight from L.A. to Houston on December 23rd, 1964, Brian Wilson, his brother, suffered a nervous breakdown that would prevent him from touring with the Beach Boys until 1983. I felt I had no choice, said Brian, of his decision to quit touring with the band. I was run down mentally and emotionally because I was running around, jumping on jets from one city to another, one night stands, also producing, writing, arranging, singing, planning, teaching, to the point where I had no peace of mind and no chance to actually sit down and think or even to rest. And it would come out later that Brian, and I believe what he has, is audio schizophrenia. And there is a movie that I was talking to you about earlier called Love and Mercy, which kind of go into Brian's story. And I really enjoy that movie. In 1964, Dennis received his first Beach Boy album credit for drum solo, Denny's Drums. The Beach Boys did a Tammy show and two movies, which seemed to be a trend, was to like find a band... And do a beach movie in that era. And those two movies were Monkey's Uncle and Girls on the Beach. They both sound like classics. The Beach Boys appeared on <laughs> The Beach Boys appeared on Ed Sullivan and American Bandstand in sixty four. And during a session of I Get Around, Dennis got so upset at Murray's criticism that he actually put his hand through a wall and walked out. And then Brian fired his dad that day. So you have to think, man. Thanksgiving was probably pretty awkward. Probably. In 1964, they abandoned beach-going themes for more personal lyrics and ambitious orchestrations. It's during this time in 1965 that Dennis marries his first wife, Carol Freeman, and adopt an infant son, Scott, on July 29th, and they moved into 2600 Benedict Canyon Drive. Okay. Why are we giving addresses? This seems dangerous. <laughs> well... It's interesting that you say that because Benedict Canyon is the area that will become important later. Okay. Now, here's the part where I talk about what's arguably one of, and I say one of, it's not the, it's definitely one of the greatest albums of all time. In 1966, the Pet Sounds album and Good Vibration single raised the group's prestige as rock innovators and established the band as symbols of the counterculture era. I'm talking about good vibrations. <clears throat> yes, very good. <laughs> Pet Sounds was the 11th studio album by the Beach Boys, released May 1966 on Capitol Records. It was initially met with lukewarm, critical, and commercial response in the United States, peaking at number 10 on the Billboard's LP charts. That's still pretty good, though. Yeah. For lukewarm, top, but still in the top 10. Yeah, and who listens to critics anyway? I mean, honestly. Like, if I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes, I'm going to look at the audience score and not the critic score. Because I feel like... Critics are overly critical? Yeah. And also, who are you? Where's your top 10 album, yeah. A-hole? <laughs> just saying. You got, you're so violent tonight. I'm not violent. I'm just very anti-no tonight. Yeah. <laughs> The album was hailed by the musical press and was an immediate commercial success, peaking at number two on the the UK Top 40 album chart. 
remaining among the top 10 positions for six months. Promoted as one of the most progressive pop albums ever. Yes, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Pet Sounds attracted more recognition for its ambitious recording and sophisticated music and is widely considered to be one of the most influential albums in the history of music. The lead single, Caroline No, was issued as its official solo debut. It was followed by two singles credited to the group, Sloop John B and Wouldn't It Be Nice. Wouldn't it be <laughs> Backed with what I would consider probably one of my top ten Favorite songs of all time, God Only Knows. Actually, BBC, for the love of music, redid God Only Knows. And it had people like Pharrell, Kylie Minogue, Brian May, Brian Wilson, all coming together to do this beautiful piece of music. I encourage you to go look on YouTube because it, it does live on the internet. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Not the same. It's still beautiful. So in 1966, Dennis files for divorce from Carol, and they actually reconcile soon after. In June 1967, Carol files for divorce, and their daughter is born in February. So he files a divorce from Carol in 66. She files a divorce from him in June, and they have a... Why didn't, they just, why didn't she just finalize the one that he filed for? I don't know. I just think they got back together, and then they had their baby. And then she said, screw this, I'm out. Yeah, because maybe what it was was they were, you know, they had talked about getting a divorce in 1966. He started the process. She discovers that she's pregnant. She doesn't want to get, she doesn't want to have the baby out of wedlock. And so then they they just divorced. Maybe they would try again. Maybe. Try to stay together for the kids. Yeah. Um, That's usually not, usually does not work. No. It just messes up the poor kids. Yeah. In May 1967, the Beach Boys attempt to tour Europe with four extra musicians brought from the U.S., but were stopped by the the British Musicians Union. The tour went on without the extra support, and the critics described their performance as amateurish and floundering. Days after, they announced that Smile was scrapped. And here's the thing about Smile. It is probably going to have to be a short set all on its own. I can't. There's so much about Smile that I can't even get into it in this podcast because it would it would be a four hour podcast. Is that the one? The smile though your heart nope. is breaking. Oh, nope. That's actually a. That's the only one I want to hear about. Then no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, that that's actually. It was a vocal track on a silent film by Charlie Chaplin, redone by Nat King Cole and then later done by his daughter. It's a beautiful song. It's a gorgeous song. It's been done by many people, by the way. Yeah. But every time I think about Smile, I think about Nat King Cole's version. The first time I heard that song and became obsessed was actually in My Girl 2. Yep. Yep. Where Veda sings it to the baby. First, you the, see the mom, her the mom, mom sing it. Yeah, you see her mom sing it to her on a little film, on a video, home video first. So that would be the first time I heard it. And then she sings it to the baby, yes. But still. My Girl 2 is really underrated. It really is. I mean, it was not as great as My Girl 1. Nothing is. It was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, just to give some folks context at least, Smile was supposed to be this like, Really experimental album, very layered. They recorded something like 106 hours for the one album, and it was scrapped. That is the very abridged version about what happened to Smile. So Smile was an album. Yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah. That's a lot of hours. And then I think eventually it was released a few years ago because Brian Wilson is still alive. And fun fact, we saw him in concert and it was terrible. Well, that maybe isn't a nice one to share with everybody. The thing was, he was doing pet sounds. Brian Wilson was doing pet sounds. And he was playing through the whole album and he gets to God Only Knows. And we're at the Hollywood Bowl and everybody starts singing God Only Knows. And we're all having this like great experience where everybody knows the words and we're all waving our arms. And he finishes the song. And he gets his standing ovation, and he literally like turns to the crowd and goes, "All right, sit down. I'm not done singing yet." And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna go." 
<laughs> well, maybe he was just joking. No, he was grumpy. Days after announcing that Smile was scrapped, Derek Taylor terminated his employment with the group to focus his attention on organizing the Monterey Pop Festival, an event held in June that the Beach Boys declined to headline at the last minute. David Leaf explained, Monterey was a gathering place for that far-out sounds of the new rock, and the Beach Boys in concert really had no exotic sounds except for good vibrations to display. The net result of all this internal and external turmoil was that Beach Boys didn't go to Monterey, and it's thought that this non-appearance was really what turned the underground tide against them. Which we'll hear a little bit about the Monterey Pops Festival in next week's episode. Oh, you guys are getting a sneak peek. No spoilers, though. That's all I'm going to say of that. Dun-dun-dun. No, no dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> oh, oh, we're going do-do-do-do. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> it isn't a dun-dun-dun, like, horrible moment. Yeah. <laughs> Following the dissolutions of the group Smile Project in 1967, Brian gradually handed over production and songwriting duties to the rest of the band, reducing his input because of his mental health and substance abuse. The group's commercial momentum subsequently faltered, and despite efforts to maintain an experimental sound, they were dismissed by early rock critics as archetypal pop music cop-outs. Like, here's the thing. The, That's horrible. The Beach Boys created the surf sound. Like, that California sound, that was the Beach Boys. There wouldn't be a Jan and Dean. There wouldn't be a Bobby Fuller without the Beach Boys walking in front of them. Like, this is where I hate critics. Because it's like, do you not understand the social and cultural impact that the Beach Boys had on the musical soundscape? But they were more poppy than some of the other surf groups. And I, out there, like yeah. the Dick Dales and all that. Wait, no. not Is it Dick Dale? Look, and I understand that we're moving from that early surf era into more experimental stuff because now we're getting into people like Jimi Hendrix, who's doing All Along the Watchtower, and we've got Janis Joplin, and we've got all of these, Santana, we've got these amazing, darker musical sounds that are coming in. The doors. Yeah, and, and I get that the... the the decade is moving towards something different. But Jesus, man, cop out. They created the sound. They're moving from you to me. No, that <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's I'm all of it. I am all of the music. I'm saying <laughs> they're moving from more poppy to more experimental. OK, so here's something weird that actually kind of sounds like a different story. And this is going to be clear in just a second. In May 1968, the Beach Boys undertook a concert tour of the United States with the Mahari, the Maharishi Mashe Yogi, their Indian meditation guru, which I do believe that the Beatles did the same thing. Yes. So, but it, the tour preceded the release of Beach Boys' friend album, which similarly reflected the influence of the Maharishi's transcendental meditation technique on the band. And that was a commercial and artistic failure. The program comprised of a set of songs by the Beach Boys, followed by a lecture from the Maharishi on the benefits of meditation. 29 concerts were originally scheduled, many of them in college venues, but the venture was abandoned after three days of low ticket sales and the hostile audience's reaction to the, the Maharishi segment. The guru's commitment to making a documentary film about himself for four-star television was cited as further impediment. The tour was initiated by Mike Lowe, who had become devoted to Transcendental Meditation in December 1967 and had joined the Beatles for two weeks at the Maharishi's training course in India in early 1968. Given his popularity, canceling the tour dates with the Maharishi cost the Beach Boys $250,000. And a commentator later described the pairing as one of the most bizarre entertainments of the era. Um, yeah. And that was $250,000 in 1967, 1968? It's still a quarter of a million dollars. Like No, but it's even more now. Well, yeah. But even then, it's still a quarter of a million dollars. It is a quarter of a million dollars. That is so much. Yikes. But yeah, that would be freaking bizarre. The Beach Boys <laughs> opening 
with special guest the Maharishi. But that was the thing, like he What? He came on after the Beach Boys played. Like So the Maharishi is headlining? I guess so. <laughs> that doesn't make it better. Again, not better, worse. I really wish I was around for that because I feel like I probably would have really enjoyed that. <laughs> I wish I was around for the 60s. Here's the scary part, and this is going to be why every person probably listens to this episode. In 1968, Dennis had separated from his wife, Carol, right? He had rented a large house at the west end of Sunset Boulevard near Will Rogers State Park. One day, while driving his Ferrari along the PCH, he picked up two female hitchhikers. The fact that he picked up these women solely for sex was not out of the ordinary for Dennis. He was actually always on the prowl for women. However, this time, a brief sexual encounter would trigger a series of happenings that would change the rest of his life. These two women were Patricia Cranwinkle and Ella Jo Bailey, two members of the family. That night, returning home from a late recording session at his brother Brian's, Dennis found the house filled with naked hippie girls. Out of the shadows appeared a wiry elf-like man with a wicked sparkle in his eye. Charles Manson was a 33-year-old criminal who spent most of his life in jail. He actually referred to state prison as daddy. He had been there for he had been there for so long that he just referred to the prison system as his father. He was also a powerful prophet, philosopher, and charismatic guru to his followers. In short, he owned their soul. Manson generated an undeniable electricity. He challenged people constantly, making himself repulsive to some and alluring to others. Greg Jacobson said that Charlie and Dennis were very much alike, and that's why they were drawn to one another. According to Jacobson, who knew both men well, the main difference between them was that Dennis had a well-developed heart and Manson didn't possess a heart at all. Manson easily commanded the attention of the thrill-seeking Dennis, and for a year, he would exploit his new famous friend. Dennis took advantage of Manson in his own way as well. He spent much of 1968 enjoying the pleasures of the flesh that Manson's young female devotees provided. For months, the house was a site of ongoing psychedelic orgies. That part I can't get behind. Yeah, so again, gross! There is a, a great podcast called You Must Remember This that has, I think, a 12-part series on the Manson murders, one specifically being about Dennis Wilson. And it was saying that he would rack up medical bills, taking the girls to the doctors and to the dentist and getting their teeth fixed and making sure they're fed and taken care of and blah, blah, blah. But the thing was that he would rack up his own doctor bills because he kept getting syphilis. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, at least he's taking care of them she says is a giant question mark hoping people don't judge her <laughs> a member of the manson family sandra good explained dennis really wanted to live with us he was just going to drop everything and come be with us whether it was in a tent or whatever his brother basically said you know by you're bound by a contract and if you renege we will have you committed we're going to get a psychiatrist's testimony that you flipped your lid so you're a slave to this contract and that was that Good then emphatically added, Dennis loved Charlie. And I, honestly, I, I think that's true, that there was a general respect between the two of them that they actually could possibly love each other. That's how you ha that's how cult leaders operate. They're severely charming to trick the peoples into loving them. Why, why did you turn into a Russian? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I do that. <laughs> In November, Wilson informed Manson that one of his songs would appear on the upcoming Beach Boys album, 2020. Manson learned the full truth of Never Learn Not to Love was going to be released as the B-side for their cover of Bluebirds Over the Mountain and in December, 19, in December 1968. In 1968, the group recorded Never Learn Not to Love. Little did the eager listeners know that the song was once known as Cease to Exist, and it was originally penned by Charles Manson. When the song was released, it was renamed, and the sole writing credit was given to Dennis Wilson, which was a problem, especially to Charles Manson. In the days after the song was released, Wilson actually woke up to find a bullet in his bed. Manson would later take responsibility, saying, I gave him a bullet because he changed the words to my song. So he wakes up one morning, and there's a bullet in his bed. 
That is terrifying. Uh, yeah. According to Love, and that's Mike Love, Wilson also confessed that he had seen Manson shoot someone and stuff him down a well. And I don't, I don't know if that's true, but there was a lot of drug use going on at this time. Don't drink the water, kids. <sighs> One of the few interviews that Dennis gave that included comments about Manson was in Rave Magazine in 1968, well before the 1969 mass murder spree for which the Manson family became a, a grisly part of the public consciousness. And I quote, Fear is nothing but awareness, Dennis told the interviewer. I was only frightened as a child because I did not understand fear. The dark, being lost, what was under my bed, it all came from within. Sometimes the wizard frightens me. Charles Manson, who is a friend of mine, who says he is God and the devil. He sings, plays, and writes poetry, and may be another artist for Brother Records. So at this time, he actually believed, like, he, he saw something unique in Manson, and he actually believed that he had talent as a lyricist. The thing that Dennis loved about Manson was he had such a spontaneous side to him, remembers Jacobson. Charlie could sit down with a guitar and sing about the flies buzzing around his head and make it sound interesting. During this time, Dennis was often under the influence of LSD, it was the 60s, and other mind-altering substances. Now, this next story is messed up, if this is true. That one wasn't? Oh, no, this is just a different kind of messed up. Oh, okay. Dennis actually believed that he was twice the victim of dosing, which is the act of slipping LSD into food, into the food or drink of an unsuspecting person. At one point, he told friends that Mike Lowe first played that trick on him in retaliation for Dennis having a fling with Mike's wife, Suzanne. That's a joke? That is not... Well, that is not a joke. It's a, quote, joke. The second person to victimize Dennis in this way was Charlie, who fed him a huge dose of the chemical. Dennis was never quite the same after that, said a close friend. It really changed his whole personality. With Manson as his tour guide, Dennis embarked on a journey into the darkest recesses of the human mind. And I quote, At first it was fun, Dennis confided to a friend. Then Charlie started getting weird. Getting weird? Exactly. This this started you, weird and got weirder. Do you think the the dose that Charlie gave him might have been an attempt an attempt on him, like to kill him? Yeah, that if he gave him enough to just like permanently mess him up. Maybe I don't, or more of like a mind control because that's oh, maybe that that was the indoctrination of the family kind of was for Charlie to constantly give his followers hits of acid and pump information into their heads so that they would be completely brainwashed. Oh, okay. And so that I think that might have been more of what he was trying to do was to get to gain control of Dennis Wilson's psyche ah, so he could control him better. Just still. Because what what was happening here was a partnership between Charles Manson who wanted to be in the 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 music industry and who wanted notoriety and wanted his voice to be heard. And Charles has something that Dennis wants, which is these beautiful women and, you know, to be kind of worshipped as the rock god that he is. And Dennis has those music connections. So each of them is kind of providing something that the other one wants. Charlie's giving Dennis women and Dennis is giving Charlie a shot at the music industry. Right. Allegedly, Manson held a knife to Dennis's throat on more than one occasion. My God. <laughs> Dennis would shout, do it, and Manson would grin furiously, slowly move the blade away, and the two would fall down laughing. Man, LSD's a hell of a drug. Let's not play that game, shall we? I, I can almost categorically tell you, TJ, that I will never hold a knife to your throat. Good. You, you, you're going to give me the same promise? We'll see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis always wanted to know what existed on the other side. His brother Brian said that when he was younger, Dennis would go outside and lift up the lids of trash cans just to see what was inside. What? Okay. No, I mean, like, Dennis was a curious kid. Yeah. Like, he was all about expanding his worldview and finding out answers to questions that he didn't know. Fair. Look, that was in the book, okay? Exactly where it appears in the <laughs> podcast. One thing that had a profound effect on his behavior throughout life was the guilt that he felt about becoming so wealthy at such a young age. Man, I wish I had that problem. Me too. It's like, <laughs> oh, darn. Oh, shoot. I'm rich again. Oh, shoot. He didn't feel like he deserved it and overcompensated by being overly generous with friends and strangers. 
1968, cash had been rolling in for a while, and Dennis's spending habits were as flagrant as ever. The Manson family never had it so good, and the material loss had no effect on Dennis. While there are some reports that some of the other Beach Boys participated in these sexual shenanigans at Dennis's home, a quickie in the shower with squeaky from did not amount to the embrace of Manson. Actually, I don't think his brothers liked us too much, said Sandra Good. Wait, I actually know the name Squeaky from. Yeah. I know that name. I don't. Know I always why. wanted to play her in the movies. I don't know why I know that name, but I know it. She tried to kill one of the presidents. Oh, okay. Dennis eventually brought Charlie over to Brian's studio to cut demos. The unlucky engineer of those sessions was Stephen Desper. Manson always had a problem with the man, and to him, Desper, who was an authority on the recording process, represented just that. The electronics expert was clearly shaken by his encounter with a mass murderer, which he wasn't a mass murderer yet, but we have to sensationalize that. He gapingly endured hours of recording with Manson, but when a knife was produced at the studio, Desper called it quits. I mean, yeah. Yeah. After someone pulls a knife on you, you don't help record their album no not at all that's an unspoken rule you go okay bye bye and then you leave sure let me go let me go just hit record peace out so one night dennis and greg one night so one night dennis and greg jacobson took manson took manson to the whiskey a go-go where his demonic antics terrified even the most jaded nightclub crowd. A witness remembers the occasion like this, and I quote, Charlie started flailing around on the dance floor in an amphetamine-driven rage. His eyes were like huge black mirrors reflecting the fear right back at anyone who looked. Everyone got the hell away from him. The whiskey's floor emptied and Manson danced on alone. Ugh. Gross. Just, that's not even gross. That's just creepy. Yeah. For some reason, Dennis actually encouraged his mother to stop by the house and meet Charlie and his followers. When she arrived on his doorstep, Dennis greeted her with a come on in and meet them. They're nice. Audrey came face to face with Charles Manson in her son's backyard. He was wearing a long robe and she thought that he was older than he was supposed to be. But she did think that he actually had a kind face. When the story of the killing spree broke, Audrey was horrified. So after Dennis's mom met Charlie, I think something kind of stirred in him. He realized that Charlie was bad news. So he tried to slip away from him without making him angry because he had, Charlie had a super short temper. So Dennis's mom met Charlie I think something stirred in him where he, he started to really wake up and realize that Charlie was bad news. And so he was trying to figure out a way to sever ties with Charlie without making him angry. And Charlie had a really short temper, so that wasn't hard. It wasn't hard to make him mad. The Beach Boys touring schedule during the second half of 1968 was a blessing in that regard. Dennis was actually rarely in town and without telling Charlie and the family who were still occupying his house, he moved to a different house in the Palisades that allowed the lease to expire right out from underneath him. So basically, he let the Mansons take over his house that he was leasing. He let the lease expire and was like, I'm just going to leave this to the landlord. Oh, yeah, that's that's one way to be sneaky about things. Yeah. And, and low-key. Like, I feel like that would incur more wrath yeah but anything could have made him angry at this point fair manson had to move back to the desert site where he and his family was often held up at which is spawn ranch and then have to shuttle back and forth from la and i've actually been to spawn ranch which is pretty far out of la proper and there is nothing there nothing there is a, if you are one of those macabre sort of explorers, you can still go there. There's no markings. There's nothing there. There's a church that you park at and then you like sneak away and then you can find the entrance to the ranch and it's kind of hidden 
and you can go down and there's still the famous kind of rock formation that all the girls took a picture at and it's a famous photo you can see it but the actual what they would do is they would live on the ranch with George Spawn and basically trade favors let's just say for letting yeah. them live there but the Manson family would like clean and help feed the stocks and fix stuff up but they would live on this ranch and it burned down on September 26, 1970. So there's nothing there. There's nothing that still exists. So you can go there, but there's nothing there. So yeah, that's a brief history of Spawn Ranch. But Charles Manson is extremely relentless. And he was really preoccupied with tracking Dennis down. And from time to time, he actually would find him. And on those occasions, he would demand money and try to pressure Dennis into joining the family full time. And Manson also wanted Dennis to recruit his friends. Dennis actually had to move again at this time to an apartment below Greg Jacobson's house in Benedict Canyon. And Benedict Canyon is kind of historical in the sense that that's actually where the Tate house is. Well, it was. The Benedict Canyon area, I actually have a friend that lives on Cielo Drive. So I've been to the gates, and of course the gates have been revamped since then and it's eerie like the whole cielo the whole benedict canyon area is kind of eerie because it is where old hollywood used to live i think valentino used to live there it's it's a famous area and if you'll remember from our sam cook episode i i I did confirm this as far as i could dennis wilson actually bought sam's ferrari so that's right that's wrapping back so I did find a couple of different sources that actually said Dennis Wilson had bought his Ferrari. And for anyone who knows the Manson family, Tex Watson actually destroyed it. And I guess... That name sounds familiar. Yes. Tex Watson was the one that did most of the murders. Right. Um, but I guess, I guess they repaired the Ferrari because, remember, we said that it was sold to the anonymous Japanese dealer... Right. For a record-breaking cost. But yeah, the, the, the car was destroyed. And a friend of De- and friends and a friend of Dennis's was also being harassed by Manson. Terry Melcher was a very talented and successful producer who would work with the Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders. And those are two big names from the sixties and the seventies. Yes. And he was the son of actress Doris Day. Bruce Johnson. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, and this is where we're going to start getting deep into what led up to the murders. Bruce Johnson and Meltzer had partnered as Bruce and Terry making some early surf and hot rod records, and Meltzer had a long-standing relationship with the Beach Boys. And when Dennis and Greg suggested that he listened to uh, the demos of Charlie's material, Meltzer and Manson became acquainted. At first, Meltzer seemed somewhat impressed by Charlie's music, but he thought that an essential commercial element was missing. He did not share Dennis's opinion that Charlie had potential as a recording artist. Manson became enraged, and then it was finally made clear that Melcher had written him off. When Manson issued threats, Meltzer was astute enough to take them seriously, and he moved out of his house. Then, after ranting for months about his helter-skelter plans with a series of murders, Charles Manson and his loyal clan enacted the sick fantasy. So Manson knew Melcher. Melcher lived at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. That's important because he lived in the house. Charlie had been to that house. And so on the night of August 9th, 1969, the new occupants of Melcher's former home at 10050 Cielo Drive, were brutally murdered. Along with the victims was actress Sharon Tate, the pregnant wife of Roman Polanski, and an unlucky visitor to the house that night was Jay Sebring, hairdresser to the stars, the man who had created Dennis's and Brian's striking pompadours in early 1964. Sebring died trying to protect Tate. The other ones that died were Wojciech Fikowski, Abigail Folger, and Stephen Parent. And Stephen Parent 
if he had left five minutes earlier, he would still be alive, but he was actually the first victim of the Mansons. He was sitting in his car outside Jeez. of... Yeah, he, he was trying to sell a radio to the the groundskeeper that lived in the back house, and he declined, and then he got into his car to leave, and Tex Watson struck. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, the whole affair is really sad, but... Dang. Uh, I mean, it shakes me up when I think that there's just people in the world that can do this to other people. Thanks for the nightmares, LD. You're welcome. I love that we do this at night. (laughs) The Mansons continued their rampage, this time at the residency in Griffith Park in the Griffith Park area. These horrific killings would later be known as the Tate-LaBianca murders. The chilling details were broadcast far and wide. Los Angeles residents were on edge for months, and people would actually say that the feeling of fear was palpable. It could actually be gauged because the amount of guns that were sold and the amount of guard dogs that were sold. Like, people didn't attend friends' funerals because they were afraid that maybe one of them was the killers. They stopped being friends with each other. People started locking their doors. People started getting you know, rudimentary alarm systems and things like that. I mean, it was, it, it created a, a sense of fear in residence. Yikes. Yeah. But understandable. Yeah. If you're not really sure why they were targeted or who did it or, you know. Yeah, and, and the fact is what happened to them was Something that had not been seen since about 1929 when they had the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Like, that was, you know, a 60, well, it was a a 40-year jump in violence. Right. And that, that kind of brutality hadn't been seen in anyone's lifetime, except in war. So, Manson and his crew were not to be implicated until November, but Dennis and some of his friends were harboring a sickening suspicion. We had a sense that something was going on, said Fred Vale. It was really eerie. One night in September of 1969, Ed and Trisha Roach went to see Dennis at his apartment below Greg's house with the Tate and LaBianca murders only a few weeks old. The mood in Southern California was one of horrified anxiety and adding to the tension among this particular group of friends was the fact that Jacobson's wife had just lost their baby during childbirth. Dennis was devastated. Gently, he began playing the piano for his friends, and as he did, a spirit of healing seemed to emanate from his music. Thus, Just then, Trisha felt a coldness fill the room. Before she could react, the door burst open, and there was Charlie. He had on a big sombrero, and his eyes were rolling in different directions, remembered Ed. This terrifying apparition sucked up all of the fragile, positive, music-generated vibes, leaving Dennis and friends deflated and weak. I've just been to the moon, shouted Charlie, and then he vanished back into the night. But from that moment on, Dennis was convinced that he would never be able to be freed completely from this incarnate of evil. Dennis had been reluctant to assist police for one very compelling reason. So, like, right after when Manson was arrested, police began to make these connections with, like, okay, who knew him, who was with him, who was familiar with him, who knows Charlie best? And they found their way to Dennis, and Dennis was stonewalling them. But there was a reason. He had been reluctant to assist the police for one very compelling reason— He and his family had already been threatened by Manson. After the murders, before the family had been charged, Manson and his people had been systematically terrorizing Dennis, his family, and his friends. A close friend of Dennis revealed that they would leave bullets in his house and write little notes on them that would really scare the shit out of us. One simply read, You can't get away from me. Whoa. Maybe he should have stopped taking the LSD. Now, before the murders actually happened, it was well known that the Manson family would sneak into people's houses and rearrange their furniture and eat their food. What? Oh, yeah, this was like a thing. 
they they did it a lot. And I why do I feel like I actually knew someone who knew someone who this happened to? It wouldn't shock me. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not saying anything else the rest for the rest of the Manson section. Fair enough. Uh, they called this activity creepy crawling. One oh. the- <laughs> to be fair, I didn't say anything. I just made a noise. <laughs> no, it's- I have nightmares now. One morning, Dennis awoke to find his grand piano in a different part of the house from where it had been when he'd gone to sleep. Later, a friend remarked on how disturbing the story was. Dennis actually told him one that was far more chilling. One night, Barbara and I woke up to the people, these people in my room holding knives over us. Then the shadowy figures disappeared into the darkness, laughing. Could you imagine? Could you even imagine going to bed feeling safe and in the middle of the night you wake up and there is a group of people holding knives over you and your wife? Um, no. In the midst of all this turmoil, the Beach Boys and their publicity people had become disgusted. The free-living, out-of-control Dennis had finally done it. He had ruined the group's shiny all-American image. They did everything they possibly could to sweep the Manson connection under the rug. And Dennis would not comment on it for years. Like, literally, he would, if you ask him about it, he was like, I'm not going to talk about that. Move on with the conversation or I will leave. After the dust had settled, it became clear that the original California server boy had prevailed. Not even Charles Manson could kill the image of the Beach Boys. So Dennis was always very reluctant to actually talk about Charles Manson. But the fact is, he actually recorded a song that Manson had written. And so that is a tie that will never be unbound. Like, that, that bird is out of the cage. That can of worms has been opened. He profoundly regretted the lack of judgment that allowed him to be drawn into the Manson family's bloody vortex. He suffered the guilt of a survivor. In the end, it came down to Dennis was big, rich, famous, and ridiculously trusting and kind. He was a natural conduit that Manson could exploit in his desire to realize that his previously thwarted musical aspirations could come true. Through the combined effect of bad luck and judgment, he became a stepping stone for evil. Upon hearing of Dennis's death, Manson was quoted as saying, Dennis Wilson was killed by my shadow because he took my music and changed the words from my soul. Okay, so that was Dennis's encounter with Charles Manson. And if you can imagine, that probably shook him to his core. Because I don't think I've ever encountered an evil like that. So I can't imagine how Dennis would cope with with that encounter and it wasn't like a brief encounter like they lived together they created music together they shared ideals together it wasn't just this mild in passing meeting it was a friendship for lack of a better term right and that is where we are going to leave you guys this week yeah way to leave it on a downer what a creep I'm I'm so sorry, but... I can't believe you're going to make me walk to my car now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm scared. But you have Ruka with you, so it's okay. I won't have her with me outside. That's true. She's a great guard dog. She is a great guard dog. Even though she's a cat. <laughs> even though she's a cat. I don't think she'd be that good of a guard dog. Uh, yeah, she's way too friendly. Yeah, she'd just be like, meow, and then throw herself on the ground. Yep, that's pretty much how that would go. So, um... <laughs> So, yeah, I'm going to leave you guys with that this week. Um, I'm so sorry for lying to you guys. It's it's my fault. I had way too much information about Dennis Wilson because that's what happens when you put a book in my hand. It's true. I'm going to ban her from using biographies as source material because <laughs> it just ends up always being two parts. I'm sorry. But, yeah, we, we lied to you. This is actually going to be a two-parter. But uh, I promise you next week will be much lighter, question mark. <laughs> kind of. I hope I hope so. Um, Not really, but okay. No, because you, you guys know how this podcast always ends. Yeah. And so I say lighter with a question mark. 
And uh, yeah. Mm. So you guys, uh, thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please make sure to check out next week's episode where we finish up the tumultuous, tumultuous times. Turbulent. Turbulent, tumultuous, tantalizing tale of <laughs> All right then. of Dennis Wilson and then after that TJ takes over for another two-part episode. That one was planned though. That one was planned. That one was planned and when you finally when we finally reveal the subject, hopefully you will understand. We're keeping it we're keeping y'all in suspense for right now. Yeah, and then we're trying to decide whether or not to give you guys one short set this month to wrap out the Haters Gonna Hate to give you two short sets a month, which is Haters Gonna Hate and a special short set on Woodstock since this year is the 50th anniversary of that, or to give you three short sets because we actually sat down and got to talk to an amazing artist that uh, we don't want to reveal yet. We're very excited about it. So, we are very excited. So we haven't decided that yet, so we'll figure it out. I'm actually... Basically, you're getting a ton of episodes this month. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing and you're it welcome. All, we're doing it all for you. All for yeah. you. We're sorry, but not really, because, I mean, you're welcome. You get a lot of cool stuff to listen to. Yeah. We're trying to, to expand what we're doing with the show and switch up things and make it a little different and better and more fun. And we're trying. Know. We're trying out some different hats here. Yeah. It might change. It might go back to the way it was. It might. Yeah. We might find a, a more fun. We're still fledgling, so we're flailing. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> we're going to nail this podcast by episode 50. Yeah, so. we'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> so if you guys want to support the show, we appreciate any and all donations to our Patreon. And you can find that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll heaven LT. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can also email us. Please email us at uh, Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com if you have any cool stories, questions, concerns, or corrections. And uh, we will happily interact with you guys on any of our social media platforms. We love seeing you guys there. And uh, other than that, check us out next week. Keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yeah. Do you want me to walk you to your car? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.